Well, um, sadly, I am a person known often for making some not great decisions about the things that I eat. Uh, so I was going to tell you a story this morning. We're talking about self-control. And as soon as I thought about this topic, there was a story that came straight into my head about some decisions that I made. And a lot of the pastors and I, we've, as we've had preaching team meetings about this Proverbs series, we've said there are far too many stories of foolishness in our lives. Where are all the stories of wisdom? So uh, this particular occasion, I was uh, watching uh, a movie, and one of my favorite snacks to eat during a movie is Haribo uh, gummy bears. Do you all know what I'm talking about when I say gummy bears? Yeah, okay. Now, I don't do anything small. I like the party size bag of gummy bears, okay? Because why would I eat just one when I can eat a pound of gummy bears? So I had this pie-sized bag, and I did not intend to eat the whole bag. I was just watching the movie, and you're, you're having, oh, that tastes good. I'm going to have a little bit more. I'm going to have a little bit more. And by the end of this uh, short one-hour-and-a-half movie, I had eaten an entire bag. That's where things went very badly for me. We're in church, so I can't really tell you in detail what happened, but what I can tell you is there was a demonic attack upon my lower intestine. It went very badly for me. I had to rush very quickly out of there. It turns out the gummy bears are loaded with this thing, glycerin, right? And if you have too much glycerin, it has a very particular effect on your body. Now, I discovered after that that there's like a long uh, history of gummy bears doing this. There's like stories online of if you eat too many, it goes really badly for you. The stories are horrifying. I tell you not to look them up because they really are horrifying. But what the problem was there is I had a lack of self-control, right? It's easy to see in that situation. There's nothing wrong with gummy bears. But when I don't have control over myself, when I'm not watching what I'm doing, when I'm not being thoughtful, and I'm just taking in and taking in, there's consequences for me, Right? That's why self-control is such an important topic, is it just takes one light-hearted story to realize, actually, a lack of self-control can be truly destructive in your life. We're going into Proverbs now for, uh, we've been doing this the last few weeks, and each week we've been kind of highlighting that the book of Proverbs is God's wisdom to us. It's the gift of God's wisdom, and it's guiding us primarily in principles, not promises, The book of Proverbs is not a list of how life will go if you do the right things. Rather, it's kind of a guide that's helping to shape you into a person of wisdom, to shape you into the kind of person that makes wise decisions. Really, the book of Proverbs is much more concerned with quality of character than it is about precise behaviors. So it's no surprise that one of the things that Proverbs highlights as important in the pursuit of wisdom is self-control. Now, there's a lot of ways that you can define self-control. We could say that it is the ability to exercise reason over impulse. We could say that it is the ability to maintain focus amidst distraction. But one of my favorite definitions came from uh, Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor I admire, and he said this. He said that self-control is the ability to recognize and choose the important thing over the urgent thing. Self-control is the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing in any given moment. Self-control is really about mastering ourselves. It's about taking ourselves in hand and directing ourselves well. And whichever definition lands best with you, however you think of self-control, we all know that it is a rare and valuable trait, particularly, I think, in our culture. In most situations, we are much more kind of trained or geared to uh, practice self-indulgence over self-control. We love following our impulses, following our heart. We are not good at cultivating restraint and control over ourselves. 
Think about this. The same magazines in our culture that will promote uh, sexual freedom and the same ones that are offering five steps to lose 10 pounds. At the same time, they say, indulge yourself, follow your impulses, and at the same time, they say, here's how to repair the damage after you've done that. One writer I read this week said that the United States may be the first country to outdo the rest of the world both in obesity statistics, indulgence, and in exercise statistics. So we are a country torn apart by our search for good self-control. Everyone feels this, whether you're in church, whether you're out in the regular world, the secular world, you feel this tension between the the power of impulses and desire in your life and the lack of self-control. There is a self-control problem in our world. We long for it and we struggle to attain it. And this is a terribly destructive reality according to the book of Proverbs. To live without self-control. Because a man or a woman without self-control will not make wise choices. They will bring pain and misery upon their own lives and the lives of those around them. And so the book of Proverbs is going to give us wisdom to remind ourselves of the need for self-control, the nature of self-control, and the name of self-control. So let's take a look at the need for self-control. Now, if you've spent any length of time here at North Aurora Campus, you know that Pastor Andrew loves a good uh, Marvel Comics illustration in this sermon. I tried very hard not to do that this week, but it was just right there in front of me. The Incredible Hulk is such a great way to think about self-control, isn't he? Let me tell you about this Incredible Hulk. Everybody thinks he's great. He's cool, right? He's he got some awesome CGI shots in the movies. But this is the worst superhero known to man. And let me tell you why. He causes more damage than the bad guys, right? You ever watch the movie and he's, he's you know, everybody's excited. Bruce Banner's going to lose control. He's going to turn into the Hulk and then he's going to beat the bad guys. Yeah, and then he's going to level 10 city blocks at the same time, right? This is not a good superhero. Now, he's, another reason why I think he's a really good case study for us is because in some ways, we like the Incredible Hulk. We like to think the thought of losing control of kind of following our impulses and just kind of letting all of our emotions come to the surface and letting that lead. But the truth is that just as it happens in that fictional comical world, there is so much destruction that can come about around us. We can actually hurt the things that we are seeking after. We we deter ourselves from actually attaining the things that we're looking for by losing control. There is a need for self-control in our life. This is what we're told in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 23, 19, and 21 says this. Hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. And then in Proverbs 25, 28, we're told a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Two proverbs there to help us understand the need for self-control. And the first one is talking about people who've eaten or drank so much that they've fallen into this kind of sluggish slumber. They're not focused anymore. They can't see things rightly anymore. They are distracted. When we lack self-control and we indulge in our desires and impulses, that's what happens to us. But the second proverb, I think, makes the danger even more clear. It says, a man without self-control is like a city that's been broken into without walls. It's a really dramatic picture. And in the days of Proverbs, when this would have been written, it would have been very well understood because the walls of a city were its source of security and protection. In those days, the walls of a city allowed safety from raiders and enemies. It would protect their crops and their resources. It would allow them to function as kind of a city state. They were able to have an economy. They were able to have trade, everything like that. 
But without walls, the city would be completely vulnerable to plunder, to collapse, to implosion. And the writer of Proverbs is trying to say the same thing to us. There is walls inside of our own souls. And if those walls are broken down, if we are led by our impulses, our desires, if we don't have self-control, then we'll be plundered by our desires. We'll be torn down by the things that we seek after. One commentator, J.C. Ryle, said, being ruled by the desires of your body will murder your soul. Isn't that a deeply impactful sentence? Lust and greed and verbal abuse, gluttony, drunkenness, all of these are different sins, but they all stem really from this one problem of a lack of self-control. They are desires out of control. But it's not just sin that self-control protects us from. We could easily make this conversation about, okay, well, how do we avoid sin? We need self-control. But actually, self-control is, is far more important than that. It doesn't just protect us from the presence of things that are not good and not right. It also protects us from an excess of things that are good and right. It's not just sin, you see. Maybe we are being enslaved by desires that would ordinarily, in the eyes of God, be very good. Things that are really good, but they're enslaving us. It could be, for example, workaholism. God values us being hard workers. We've just had a sermon a few weeks ago about the wisdom of work. And yet, when that desire to work hard gets out of control and it dominates our life, it can hurt our family, our friends, people that depend on us. It can cause tremendous stress in our own life, physically affecting us. In fact, if any desire gets out of control, it can be deeply destructive. Another great example is in the Bible, in the New Testament, Paul encourages Timothy to drink a glass of wine and encourages him to have a glass of wine. And yet we also know in the New Testament that to become drunk is a deeply destructive thing in your life. If that desire for something good gets out of control, it can harm you. And the problem for us, as I mentioned at the outset, is that we're in a culture that largely doesn't teach us to restrain ourselves. Our proverbs in our culture are things like follow your heart. Even in such areas as politics and education, we find that people lack a lot of self-control. We've become a people so led by our impulses and desires that there's now no shortage of places we can look to see the harm that it's caused. Find less and less self-control in the way that people speak to each other, treat each other, view each other. Road rage statistics are through the roof. We let our base impulses guide rather than thoughtful and patient reflection. And really the heart of why we talk about this, the heart of why Proverbs says, let's talk about the wisdom of self-control is because we have a father in heaven who understands this so well and does not desire destruction for us. Out of the love of his father's heart, he desires for us to be a people of wisdom who can practice a self-control that will guard us like walls around a city. He wants to protect us. If this is what it looks like without it, then if we're clear and we're understanding the need for self-control, then how do we find it? What does it look like to pursue self-control? And that's where we've got to talk about the nature of self-control. And I've got a really great uh, clip I want to show you from an experiment called the Marshmallow Test that's going to help us all understand this a little bit better. So let's, let's watch this real quick. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right. 
I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. Now I had to leave it to that last clip just because the sight of those two kids trying anything to keep themselves from going near it is such a great picture of our search for self-control, right? It's a funny example, great seeing those little kids. It doesn't change as we get older though, does it? There's always some kind of impulse or desire within us that is pulling on us, driving us, and self-control is the process of recognizing that and putting things in place to protect ourselves, whatever it looks like. So the question for us is, what's your marshmallow? What's the thing that is pulling on your heart, pulling on your attention, pulling on your thoughts? What we've got to do is we've got to begin to understand if, if a lack of self-control is a city without walls, then where are our walls weakest? Where are we in danger of being led too much by impulse and desire? Proverbs 16.32 says this, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Self-control really is about exactly what Proverbs says there. It's about ruling our spirit. It's about controlling our spirit. In ancient times, our spirit was kind of seen, that was kind of the, the way of thinking about our emotional life, the things that kind of compel us, the seat of our passions. And Proverbs says, whoever can rule that, whoever can temper that, is a wise person, a godly person. They are better than the mighty who take cities. Paul talks about the same kind of principle in the New Testament. He says in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Some translations there will put mastered by anything. And I love that phrase. I don't want to be mastered by anything, dominated by anything. That's what self-control is. Self-controlled people are not dominated. They don't use freedom as an excuse to indulge themselves. Wise people seek to rebuild broken walls and surround their city with something that's going to protect them. And that's why Paul, in, later in that same letter, there's this trajectory where Paul is discussing this idea and then three chapters later in chapter nine, Paul says this. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul, he puts himself right in the same bucket as the Corinthians, this church that he's writing to. And to make a long story short, the Corinthian church was a church that struggled with self-control. There was a lot of crazy things going on in that church, and Paul was saying, I don't want you to be mastered by anything, and neither does God. You have got to discipline yourselves. You've got to put yourself under control and master your spirit so that you are not disqualified from this race, like an athlete that's, that's been disqualified. So there's three areas I think we've got to discipline ourselves. 
our emotions, our habits, and our affections. We've got to discipline our emotions. Question here to ask is, are you being led by any of your emotional impulses? Are you being mastered or dominated by them? Are you prone to be mastered by your anger or your anxiety or your desire for pleasure? Pastor John Bechtel, who's a, an executive pastor here at the church, he has this line that I, he's told me many times. He says, emotions are wonderful servants and terrible masters. They're wonderful servants. Emotions are a wonderful, godly, good thing that God has given us to, to understand life, to experience life, and yet when we let them become our masters, they ruin us. In some of my own counseling journey, when I've been talking about anxiety and fears that I have, the, my counselor has given me this wonderful picture I wanted to share with you all, this idea of, uh, of driving a car, and your emotions are great in the passenger seat. They're really good at helping you kind of interpret what's going on, get a sense for what's going on, but if you put them in the driver's seat, and your anxiety and your fear leads you, you, don't, you stop making rational decisions. You stop making thoughtful decisions. You're just compelled by fear or by desire in one way or another. Emotions are wonderful servants and terrible masters. We've also got to discipline ourselves in our habits, how we use our time, how we eat, how we study, how we relax. Maybe you're lost in entertainment at the expense of working hard. You spend way too much time pulling back rather than pressing in. Maybe for you it's the opposite. Maybe you're working too much. You're not making space in your life to rest. Whenever someone's asking at work for someone to take an extra load on, it's always you that's saying yes to it. See, if you can't keep your attention on important things in life, it's a sign that you're out of control in habits, how you manage yourself. And we also need a discipline in our affections. Think of this as the things that we desire most for ourselves, our affections, the things that we love, the things that we chase. Is your desire for success and recognition out of control? Does it govern the way that you treat other people and the way that you spend your time? Is your desire for sexual experiences out of control? Is lust dominating your life and your relationships? Is your desire for self-satisfaction drowning out your time for serving others? See, without good and growing self-control, we've already said you'll ruin your life. But with good self-control, you're liberated to become a servant of others. Be someone who can love your neighbor well, someone who can bless those around you. And that's what God desires for us, again, both to protect us, but also to prepare us to be the kinds of people that can be a blessing to the world. And so we can strive for discipline by doing three things, three quick things here. First, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Psalm 139, 23 through 24, this is David reaching out to the Lord in prayer and saying this, search me, God, Know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is saying, I want you to help me know myself, to know my own impulses and my desires. Get in there, pull it apart, help me understand it the way that you do, God. Help me examine myself. There's a great story in the Old Testament to help us think about this, a book called Nehemiah. It's set in a period of history where the nation of Israel has fallen, their enemies have come in, and the walls of the city of Jerusalem have fallen down. And Nehemiah, a faithful Jewish man, he hears about this, and he asks the king if he can be sent back to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so he comes back, he gathers people together, and what he does to start that project is he rides around and he looks for every hole in the walls, every place where the walls have come down, where enemies are able to come in. 
There's a process of examining ourselves as being just like Nehemiah, saying, where are our walls weakest? Where have things crumbled and come down and fallen apart? Where do we need to understand ourselves better? Where would you tempt you if you were your enemy? What are the buttons that you would push in your life? What impulses are prone to plunder your city? It probably doesn't take a lot of effort to think about that. We all see it very quickly. The second thing we need to discipline ourselves is is in reminding ourselves. Reminding ourselves. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher, said, this is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Our self-control problem often stems from the fact that we listen to our desires instead of speaking to them. We let them govern us, right? The terrible, terrible uh, masters. They don't lead us well. We need to speak to them. We need to lead our own emotions. And self-control begins with truth. It begins with reminding yourself of what's most important and setting yourself towards it by directing your soul. So often in scripture we find that the, those who wrote the Psalms and the Proverbs would say, bless the Lord, O my soul. They spoke to their own soul and they said, I'm gonna direct you in how you should behave, how you should think, what you should look at and fix yourself on. So we examine ourselves, we remind ourselves, and then we surround ourselves. Just last week, we talked about wisdom and friendship, and we, talk, we talked about Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, uh, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. There is so much aid in the area of self-control when you surround yourself with good, holy, righteous friends that love you. Even Alcoholics Anonymous, in their kind of trajectory of helping those struggling with addiction, one of the key components of that that they've understood is you've got to have good friendships. You've got to have good relationships. You've got to surround yourself with the kind of people who are going to push you towards self-control rather than towards self-indulgence. And so the challenge for us as followers of Jesus is to be involved in regular, vulnerable community. To expose our souls to one another so that others know where there are holes in our walls and they can stand guard with us. But there's something more than you need than those three things. You can examine yourself, you can remind yourself, and you can surround yourself, but there is still a key ingredient that makes all three of those things work. You need the name of self-control. You need to understand the name of self-control. You see, there's only one thing that will grant you the will to discipline yourself. And it's a new affection and a new desire. Proverbs 18.10, we're told that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. See, in a city that's lost its walls when things have fallen apart, the safest place to run is to the tower. That's what happened. When enemies would break in through the city walls, the, the forces would rally back to the tower. It was the safest place to mount a defense. The safest place for you to mount your defense in the battle of self-control is to run to the name of the Lord, to hide yourself in him, to know him. Safety is not found in our efforts, it's found in his. There's a beautiful story in Genesis 29 uh, about a man named Jacob. Jacob has fallen in love with a woman named Rachel. And in those days, in those cultures, you had to get the permission of the father to, to marry them. And so Jacob, he wants to marry Rachel, but the father tells him, if you want to marry her, you have to wait seven years. You've got to wait seven years. Can you imagine being told that? But Jacob waits. 
Told in Genesis 29, 20, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Do you see what the point of that story is? Do you know what gave Jacob the self-control for seven years to wait, to work hard, to serve, was because of his great love for Rachel. He loved Rachel so much, self-control became something that he desired, he wanted, because he wanted Rachel. But there's even more to that story, because do you know what the greatest moment of self-control in all of human history is? The greatest display of self-control happened in a garden 2,000 years ago. When Jesus Christ knelt on his knees, knowing he was about to enter into tremendous suffering, and he prayed to his father and he said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, if this task can pass from me, please take it away from me. And yet Christ subdued himself in self-control and said, not my will, not my impulses, not my fears, not my anxieties, your will is what directs me, God. And so Christ lived out self-control for us. And why did he do that? How did he do that? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him and doed the cross. Where did his self-control come from? From the joy set before him. For the thing that he knew he would win if he would embrace that great trial. If he would restrain his fears and emotions and his desires and be led by God's will and direction. You see, you're Christ's Rachel, the one whom he loved so greatly and so deeply. To serve you at that cross seemed like a small thing. And it wasn't a small thing. You see, in our struggle for self-control, we often think that the problem is our desires are too strong, they're too great, our impulses, we just can't overcome them. But the truth is, often, actually, our desires are too weak. That's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. What Christ does for us, the gift that he gives us in himself, is he reveals the heart of God. He reveals the love of God. He reveals a deeper, more abiding desire that can override all the rest of them. Gives us the gift that allowed him to go to a cross. Titus 2, 11 through 14 tells us about it. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for a people, for his own possession, who is zealous for good works. Do you see what the flow is there in Titus? The idea is, is that God revealed himself in Christ. He came in the full radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature was amongst us and he revealed the heart of God to us. He appears, that grace appears and it brought salvation to us and it trains us in self-control by showing us the great love that God has for us. By giving us a Rachel. By giving us something for what we can point our hearts towards that is worth more than everything else. 
See, we don't become self-controlled by beating ourselves up over past sins and resolving never to repeat them. You will never gain self-control by shaming yourself into the ground, ever. All your greatest moments of weaknesses and failures, to just fix your eyes on them, it will not motivate you. But to fix your eyes on the one who has loved you, even in the midst of those things, in spite of those things, will transform you. We become self-controlled when we consider Jesus and the price that he paid just shows us his love. There's a great analogy that John Piper wrote about that I want to show you this morning. If I was to ask you what's the easiest way to get air out of this jar, you could think of a couple of different ways. And if we could think about the, the air in this jar as desire for things that are less than God. So mixed up in here is there is kind of self-justification. There is a desire to please other people. It's a desire to satisfy yourself. There's all kinds of things in this. And to get those out, there's a couple of things we could try. First of all, we could try just kind of sucking it out to get a pump and pump. But what's going to happen is the more air we pull out, the more air is going to go back in. It'll be a losing battle. And so for you to identify the areas where your walls are broken and to just kind of guilt yourself over and over again and say, That's, it's so bad of me to do that. I've got to get control. I've got to get control. That won't create self-control for you. But what if I was to tell you, you can get the air out of this quite easily by filling it with water. Because as the water goes in, what happens to all the air? It leaves. And I've got every ounce of air out of there simply by filling it with something else. Thomas Chalmers calls this the expulsive power of a new affection. When you are filled with the Spirit of God, when you are filled with the desire in the heart of God, no, self-control isn't something that you've got to beat yourself up over anymore. It's something that will grow in you as you behold the goodness and the love of God for you. That's why we've got to be filled with God's Spirit. We're told in Galatians 5, 22 and 24, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of it filling your life and coming into your heart is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's not by emptying ourselves of desire that we become self-controlled. It's by filling ourselves with a new desire, being filled with a new desire, a deeper desire. And if you've not made the decision to invite Christ in your life, to, to cry out to God and say, fill me with your spirit and your heart, God, then I invite you to do that today. To overcome those things in you that are overpowering you, not by working harder, chastising yourself, guilting yourselves, but by coming and falling at the feet of the cross of a man who was self-controlled for you, who loved you so very deeply. And for those of us who have believed in these truths and confessed these truths and we're still struggling, we're still yearning for more self-control, then let the wisdom of Proverbs be a refresher to you of where you can find it. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are saved. Don't go cold to the truth of the gospel. Let the good news of God's love for you in Christ always be the ground of your self-control. Because it will constantly strengthen your walls, rebuild your walls, and move you towards a God who is so faithful to you. Be filled with his spirit and walk in his wisdom. We have the opportunity this morning to remember this in a really profound and unique way. 
Christ invited us to regularly come to his table to take, to eat, and drink in remembrance of him. And when we do that, when we take this cup and this bread, we are edging our own souls, we are speaking our own souls to fix itself on a greater desire and a greater affection. We are remembering the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. The one who loved you and gave himself for you. This is not something that's exclusive to Chapel Street. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to join us in remembering our Savior this way this morning. And if you've never done this, maybe this is an opportunity for you to come to Jesus. Because even taking part in communion is a confession, it's a recognition of your need for him and an acceptance of his great love for you. So I just want to invite you, if you didn't receive one of these, you can put your hand in the air and one of our ushers will bring one to you. I want to make sure that you have this so you have the opportunity to take part in this. Could could we make sure we get one right over here? But what I want you to do is to peel that bottom layer off and find inside you'll find a small piece of bread. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and went to the cross, he sat with his closest friends, those whom he loved. And he said to them, this is my body that is broken for you. Whenever you gather, take this and eat it in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Savior that was broken for us today. In the same way, Jesus, after that, took a cup. A cup they were all familiar with. They would drink every Passover, and yet he did something new. He said, this cup, it's a symbol. It's a sign of my blood, which is poured out as part of a new covenant, a new promise for the forgiveness of sins. And he told them to take it and drink it in remembrance of him. Let's drink this in remembrance of our Savior today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the remembrance that we've just enjoyed, that moment of coming to your table and realizing what your son did for us. Lord, his body was broken, his blood was shed, and yet we're told in your word that that act he did for the joy set before him because of his great love for us. And so, Father, in our search for self-control, in our search to master our own spirits, God, we ask for your grace. We ask for your spirit to fill us. We pray that you would give us a new and deeper desire, not for the things of this world, but for your son. Lord, we love you and we need you, and so we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. church, come on.
Imagine you've been with us today. We're so glad that you could join us in setting our eyes and our hearts on this one who is our greatest and deepest affection. Is there any way we can pray for you? I want to let you know we, that's what we're here for. We love to be together, to surround one another. And so if you are struggling, please stop by. We have a prayer team. We can meet with you in our prayer room back there. And if there's any other ways we can bless you, please let us know. On the way out, you can see stories. We're celebrating this month, all the different things that God has done in our midst. And we'd love for you to stop and read some of the baptisms, testimonies, and stories of impact. And if you have any, I would love to hear from you as well. We want to capture and tell those stories. So please email me, call me if you've got a story to add there. But otherwise, let's go now in the confidence of the one who came and was self-controlled for us that we might grow in our self-control in him. Let me offer this benediction. May we go in the name of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and now is seated at the right hand of God and invites us to know him and to be filled with his spirit. It's in his name that we go. Amen.